I'm Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. Today is a special edition of the show, a part of our seven-part series on transit in the land down under, Australia. Today, our guest is Jerome Weimar, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Public Transport Victoria, or PTV. They're the statewide transit system oversight agency that oversees systems like Yara Trams and the Metro system there and the V-Line. All of these systems serve the state of Victoria, including the city of Melbourne. You'll hear all about this extensive network and how contracting out the service is the way that they provide safe, efficient, and reliable service with world-class customer service there in Australia in the land down under. On this special edition interview with Jerome Weimar, CEO of Public Transport Victoria on Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged, the worldwide phenomenon where we interview top CEOs from transit systems around the world and ask them about their career, their current projects, and the future of public transit. And today I'm excited to be in the land down under as part of our series where Transit Unplugged visits Australia. And we have the CEO of Public Transport Victoria, Jerome Weimar, which is the basically the government transit system for the whole state here. Is that right, Jerome? That's right, Paul. Yeah. Um, good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You've got a great office here in downtown town, Melbourne. Tell us about yourself some, a little bit about your background and how you ended up here as CEO of this massive transit system, which operates, by the way, the world's largest tram system. That's right. Look, yeah. we, uh, look we're very excited about our little network down here in uh, down here in Victoria, at the, the bottom end of the world. And look, being here, if you'd asked me five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to put Melbourne on the map. So okay. uh, <laughs> it's been an interesting journey over the uh, the last five years in coming in here and, uh, and be- becoming part of the team. My background, very briefly, is I had a, a spoiled youth in my 20s in being a consultant and uh, moved back into the real world of running transport services in my late 20s. I was part of the team that first set up the Greater London Authority in Transport for London. So London didn't have an integrated transport authority. We built it with the great Bob Kiley back in uh, 2001. I was part of Bob's team. Oh. And we set up Transport for London and, uh, and wow. built the organisation and, uh, and the roots of the organisation that, that we see today. Ten interesting years with Transport for London, uh, running a range of things from setting up the organisation as the chief of staff through to uh, running policing enforcement services, through to running congestion charging and ending up running the whole, uh, the overground network essentially, the uh, the buses, the roads, and the, the road control systems. I then spent five or six years working in the commercial sector. I think it's, it's it, look, as, as we know around the world, we have private contractors running many of our public transport services. So I spent a couple of years with Serco running a number of big transport contracts in the UK for a range of clients, including wonderful trains like the Docklands Light Railway and uh, Northern Rail and uh, Mersey Rail. And then a few years with uh, with First Group running commercial bus services in the UK. And that's a that's an interesting piece. I mean, run, running when you rely entirely on your fare box for your revenue, and that's the money you take through the uh, through the till is the money you've got to run the service. That puts a different lens on uh, on how you run these kind of services. 
And then, you know, some, uh, some headhunter phoned up from Melbourne and said, you fancy your tilt at uh, running the world's best public transport system? I said, sure, let's come over there here. There you go. go. And how long have you been here? So I've been here four years now, just over four years. Awesome. Um, what would you say, if you can remember back, what was the most surprising thing to you when you came from TFL and London to here? The exciting thing about Victoria and Melbourne is that it's the growth that you see all around you. So, you know, we are the fastest growing uh, developed city in the industrialized world. When I arrived here, we were just over 4 million now, we're just under 5 million. You know, we have population growth of 2.5 or so percent per annum. We've got the equivalent of two, three tramloads of people arriving in Melbourne every single week to live here. That visible sense of growth and the visible changes you see happening around you in the city is just palpable. And that gives you huge opportunities. Growth makes so many things possible. And the second thing then is that the, the speed of change here, that we can adapt very quickly. We have a state level of government, so the state government is very close to the state. It's a state of only six, seven million people. So you can make decisions quickly. You've got, you've got a very short, short line between me and the real decision makers in government. You can come out here. We have, we have a healthy balance sheet and a healthy profit and loss account in, in government. So we've got resources to play with. And you can see that with the investment program that's going on around you. So the, the investment in, in removing these ridiculous level crossings from our network, the investment in the Metro Tunnel, the investment in, in new rail services, new trains, we're getting hold finally of the tram network. So some really big changes that we're making that, that all of our passengers can see. That's driving growth and demand for our services. And there's a lot of excitement about the future. That's great. Tell me about, you You said it's only a, a short hop, skip, and a jump to the decision makers and the government. Tell me about how you're governed. Do you have a board of directors? Or you, who do you report yep. to? Those kind of things. So our governance is pretty simple. I work for the minister. Minister of Transport? Minister of Transport. So the, the, the governance system here is we have a state government for Victoria. It's a full, what we call a Westminster model of government. So we have a, a governing party, we have an opposition, and we have a full, almost a full state government which runs policing and education and housing and land use planning and public transport and infrastructure and social services. It's the full yes. the full bag of works that, right. that you would expect. Certainly in a European context, many of the national functions here are vested at state level. So, okay. so the Commonwealth level, you know, the Australia-wide level of government here does some stuff, but it's mainly things like defence and, mm. and, and welfare policy, the running of public services and the funding for public services and taxation for public services and the borrowing of funds for the exchequer is all done at the state level. So that okay. gives the state real control over the levers. And, and of course, it, it means it's a, it's a pretty agile setup. That's the structure of government. We have actually not one, not two, but three ministers for transport in, in, in this government. We have a minister for roads, we have a minister for public transport, and we have a minister for transport infrastructure, mm. which is because of the huge investment we're doing in, in infrastructure. We're, we're spending $38 billion at the moment on new rail, new road, tunnels, upgrades, yes. crossings, uh, you name it, we're building it. So we have three ministers who work very closely together okay. on the team. I report directly to the Minister of Public Transport. I spend a lot of time with the other two ministers because everything connects to everything. Yes, yes. I'm appointed, so I'm appointed by the government directly as a CEO of the agency. I guess we would be a, a short arm's length agency from government. So mm -hmm. there, are, there is a a more traditional department for transport that does the what you'd expect a, a state bureaucracy to do and mm -hmm. you know drives policies manages budgets provides advice does stuff yes uh, and we have a, a public transport agency PTV 550 or so people who are there to provide who who own the network okay and 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 Paul what's what's yeah one of the unique things about about Melbourne and about Victoria is apart from being the best place in the world, is that it runs the most outsourced version of public transport service. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, even when, when, when I was in London, you look at even systems in, in the US and in Europe, the vast majority are still 
run in the public sector. There will still be state employees or, right. or uh, other local government employees or national government employees, but there'll be, there'll be largely public employees employed to run those services, to drive the trains, the trams, the buses, yep. to maintain, to invest and all the rest of it. I used to think the UK was pretty pretty aggressive about outsourcing, but, but Melbourne went a lot further. And in the late 90s, 20 or so years ago, we outsourced our train system, our tram system, our bus system has always been running the commercial sector. What I do is I'm essentially just a big contract manager. I'm okay. just a big procurement department. That's all I do. <laughs> I just, I just, I'm just a bean counter who just, you know, essentially manages a series of contracts to try and make these services work where the real operating decisions are made by our, our contractees. So Raymond, who'll be, I think, on another one of your podcasts, yes. yeah, runs our train network. Nicola runs the tram network. And yes. I have a whole host of these guys who hold the contracts to run the individual services. However, what our passengers see is a single brand and a single entity. So the passengers don't see that we've got Keolis Downer running the trams and MTR running the trains and Ventura buses running the buses. You, you have to look pretty hard, as you do in London, to see to see who these companies are. Yes. What people see is Public Transport Victoria. They see They see the state's symbols and they expect the state to front up and say, we're accountable for running these services for you. So if your mm-hmm. services work great, which of course they do, then please let us know that the state's doing a good job because this is your government getting to work every, getting you to work every day. If things are not working well, then they expect me as the as the as a representative of, of PTV to be the person saying, here's what's going wrong. In a very similar way that Howard Collins would do for right. Sydney Trains, who is a feature of another one of your podcasts. Yeah. So tell us about the scope of the services that you oversee. You just touched on them. Yeah. Yeah. And as I interview these other guys who are CEOs of their particular operations, uh, but I want to get a grand scope sure. of everything you're sure. doing here. Yeah. So, so the grand scope here is that we have, yeah, these way of thinking about it, we have around two million passengers every working day on our network. That is that's half the up. city. <laughs> that's, well, and the rest. So what we have is we have the world's largest tram network, over 400 trams on Yara the trams. network. Yarra trams mm-hmm. on at the peak. Uh, yeah, a wonderful old streetcar system, uh, cable car system originally. It's great. In, in I rode yeah. it all over the place. It's, great, it's awesome. Right? Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually it's a lovely streetcar system. Built in the late 19th century, really came to its fruition in the 1920s and 30s. And, and you know, and retained, unlike very many cities around the world, we retained our tram system. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So a world's largest tram system that really dominates the inner suburban area. Uh, it's a you know it really yes. is a big footprint, a big spider's web across the central city. We then have our suburban train system, the, the metro train network that runs around 800 kilometres of track. It's got 218 stations across the network. We run something like 3,000 services a day, or no, two 2,300 services a day on our metro train service. So a very dense. Or, or, or a very, yeah, that's the heavy lifter for mm-hmm. us on, on the network. Um, 800 or so thousand passenger journeys a day just, just on our train network. Then we have our um, suburban bus network. So we have probably in a region of around 1,500 or so buses running around suburban Melbourne. So largely the outer suburbs. So the tram covers the inner, the inner heart of okay. the city. We do have buses that run through the centre, but yes. the real heavy lifting is done in the outer suburbs. So they that's, kind of come in and drop them off at stations correct. and they can that's transfer right. to that's rail? Right. It's a big... Okay. It's a big uh, bus to rail, bus to tram, connecting service to okay. uh, to avoid, you know, pushing more and more buses into yes. the central of the city. Yeah. And then we have our regional rail network, so our long-distance regional rail network that runs right from the city all the way out to... V-Line? Exactly, uh, V-Line, that's yes. right. So, um, which I also happen to chair, so that's another fun duty. But that is the one public service provider we still have in this state. Oh, is that right? Owned by the public sector, okay. run by public sector employees, with a board of management that that, that I chair as, um, uh, uh, as, as, as a CEO of PTV. That runs to 
exotic places like yeah. Warrnambool and Wodonga and, and uh, Taralgon. You know, it runs yeah. right across three, four-hour journeys, right across the, okay. the length and breadth of the state. And do they handle the paratransit as well for people with disabilities in the suburbs? They do. So, okay. so one of the things that we we major on here, and I think probably more so than, than the European systems I'm familiar with, is we provide a far higher level of accessibility to our core network. So our, our train network in particular, the Metropolitan Train Network, you know, every one of our stations bar one is fully wheelchair accessible. All of our trains are wheelchair accessible. People can get in and out of our system independently. Level boarding, all Level that. boarding, yeah. clear ramps, right. lifts everywhere, the, the whole world. The gap isn't too big. The gap's not too big. I mean, look, yeah. we have, we look, we have, as always, you know, legacy infrastructure where we have, you know, improvised ways of getting people onto those trains. Yes. But, and we, and we have drivers, you know, we, we will, we ask our metro drivers to provide assistance to, to getting people on wheelchairs if, if they need a bit of a support. So, so you've got an extensive so we service have, after we that. We do. So, so, so it's a, the rail network doesn't cover the whole city, but it, but the areas it does cover, it provides actually a, a very high standard. Yes. Can always be improved. And yeah. we spend a lot of our time with accessibility lobby groups who, who are, who are powerful advocates for us doing better and a very important one. Is that outsourced as well? The vans? No, no, that's, that's, that's all done. Part of that? That's all done internally. Okay. And then we have the, I think it does about accessibility on, on the bus network. We have around 95% of our buses are low floor and accessible. Okay. We have a reasonable track record in terms of our, our of our bus stops, you know, 70,000 bus stops across the city in terms of how how well they work. Mm-hmm. So th- those are in reasonably good shape. The real challenge, Paul, for us on accessibility is tram network. Mm. So, so the trams as a yeah. streetcar system, got, you know, is, is, a, is yeah. a really tough nut to crack. We have now around a quarter, you know, we have 1,700 stops across the city. Around a quarter of those are fully wheelchair accessible. Yeah, they're all in the CBD. You'll see them. They're, you know, essentially big central island platforms in the middle of the street that provide all passengers with a much safer and a much more secure boarding environment. Yes. And, and of course, provide access for those who need a bit more help to, to get on the trams. Around a quarter of our fleet of the tram network, a bit more, is, is now is all wheelchair accessible. It's low floor. That works really well. The challenge, of course, is putting the infrastructure together with the trams. So yes, three right. quarters of my trams are still high floor, 30 yes. years old. Right. They're beautiful, but they're not very accessible. And right. you see people every day you know, lifting up. Yesterday, I was on a tram here. We're lifting up buggies, and it's just oh, a nightmare. Yeah. So, it's, so, so that's the big challenge for us. So you own all the rolling stock, right? That's right. So, yeah. so we own... So that's when I say outsourced rather than privatized. Right. So, so we... We own all the trains, we own all the infrastructure, the track, we own all the trams, that. the track, the power, everything we own. You must have a massive asset management program to control all that and the budget for new vehicles yeah, yeah. And, and all that. And that's a that's been a that's been a you know an interesting piece over the last few years because one of the I guess there was a yeah, you know, one of the discoveries I think of after the first stage of outsourcing back twenty years ago was there was a view, I think, in, in government at the time that said, that's great, we've just moved, you know, we, we're handing the whole train set over to these commercial operators. We get it back in seven years' time, but but they've got it, they'll look after it. And Is that all... the contract length normally, seven years? Yeah, that's right, it's okay. about seven years. We'll get it back in the same shape. But, of course, <laughs> what, what, what happened was two, two things happened. One is one of the operators went bust because, you know, they got their projections wrong and actually the cost of the thing was a lot more than it allowed for, so the keys were handed back and that was a bit difficult. But the other piece, of course, is that you know a short an operator with a with a timeline of seven years isn't going to have the same incentives to look after a 30, 40 year asset right. uh, as the ultimate owner. So there is a very active asset management conversation taking place between us and Keolis and Nicola Gint and Raymond of MTR that says 
we have a very detailed contract. What are you going to do with our asset for the seven or eight years that we're entrusting you with that asset? How are we going to know the asset condition? How are we going to be confident that you're making the right decisions to prioritize the right investment and maintenance, not so that it, it's efficient for the 30 to 40 year view, not just a seven minus X right. year view. So that's an ongoing debate. Yes. So, so the asset, getting the asset into the right shape is, is an ongoing battle, particularly also because the demands we're placing on the network continue to evolve. We're carrying more people now. You know, we, we doubled the metropolitan train patronage in the last 12, 13 years. So you're carrying that many more people up with a completely different risk profile right. on your asset. That all has to be factored in. in terms and you have of monitors that go out, I'm sure, and check the conditions yeah. so and we, make sure that so what you're being told yeah, we, is true. Yeah, we do. We have yeah. people going out and doing, doing audits and doing checks mm-hmm. on the asset condition. We're doing a whole bunch of work at the moment to try and baseline our asset condition and say, where are we really at? Because right. we, we're spending more money now, Paul, on, on the network than we've ever done before. We're investing in more new infrastructure yeah, than ever that's before. That's wonderful. Which is great. And yeah. you know, it's a great, great thing to be involved in. But you've then got to say, well, how does that integrate with the brownfield stuff? How does that integrate right. with all the old rolling stock we're still using yes. and the old stations? And how do you ensure the system as a whole comes up to a level rather than having a, a few jewels in the crown? The right. rest of the thing is still pretty shonky. So. One of the problems that I've seen in the United States is politicians, and I'm, I'm a former elected official, we like to see our names yeah. on brass plaques. Sure. So we want that sexy new line, that new yeah. service. Meanwhile, the professional managers are telling us, you can't forget maintenance, state of good repair, sure. and maintenance sure. of your assets. And now the federal government's put in place a scoring mechanism where yeah. we have to score. And yeah. Do you all have things like that here so you know when it's time to buy? Yes and no. So I mean, one of my jobs is to have that conversation with government. It is, it is and, and that's, the, that's the great, that's the privilege of my job is to be the interface that says there is a government elected democratically with a, with a policy mandate to improve the network, provide for future growth of the city and the, and the state, and to develop the new infrastructure into the new suburbs and yes. provide people with more access to services. Yeah, well, I'm the boring guy that then turns up and says, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, but yeah, by the way, I need to upgrade my radio control system, which is really technical and really dull, and it costs an insane amount of money, but it's just as important. Right. And yeah, that's... that's that's yeah. a dialogue, you know. Bus tracking software is another example. You know, we again, were there with Nick yesterday. The, 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 it reminded me of the MTA. I don't want right. to say it, but 1980s technology. Right, a lot of it, right. yeah. So, so we have a lot of legacy systems that we're relying on. We have DOS computer systems that we're still relying upon in part of our operating systems and part of our rostering system. Right. That if we don't upgrade those, then yeah, we can have shiny new trains. But if we can't get flexibility in the driver workforce to be rostering when we need them, then the trains don't go anywhere. So there is a a healthy level of understanding in in government Mm -hmm. around, you know, that this stuff is complex and it's got lots of dynamics. And equally, it's absolutely right that the democratic process puts pressure on people like me, because otherwise the engineers go mad. Right. You know, we'll gold plate everything. We're we're happy to spend as much money as there is in in Christendom. And it's very expensive. So how do you fund it all? Tell us about your funding. How? What are you looking for? I mean, yesterday when I was here, wasn't the prime minister here announcing yeah. a brand new yeah, 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 tunnel yeah. to the airport was, or something? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we, how do we fund it? So let's talk about the basics first. We, okay. we recover around 30% of our operating costs from the fare box. Okay. That's not high by international standards. It's pretty low. Again, when I was in London, we were recovering you know, close to 100% operating costs out of the fare box. Yeah, but we're 30% is pretty good for compared to America. Okay, yeah. well, you know. <laughs> we're getting my bus service in Baltimore was under 20%. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, but, it's, but it's a, yeah, the, the importance of that is huge because the more that transport transit authorities are able to hold up their revenue line, are able to fund their own yes. operating costs and ideally fund towards long-term maintenance and renewal, the more 
the more you can even out the ups and downs of the fiscal cycle, yes. but also the ups and downs of the political cycle. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen cities and networks around the world where there's been, you know, reforming governments come in that dump a load of investment in, and then four years later, eight years later, it all dries off and the thing goes into a long period of decline. We've seen it in New York. Is the yes. Best right. example. Of Andy, our buddy there, is exactly. having to exactly. $40 billion he asked right. for That's the right. other day. That's right. So, you know, Bob Kiley, you know, went in there, what, late 80s, early 90s and sorted the place out. And, you know, then you see 20 years later, it's all fallen apart again. And that is yeah. that is a... So, so that's your job, that. right? To make the pitch to the yeah. minister, I need this that's much right. money. That's right. That's, right. So that's my job. So my yeah. job was to say, how do I retain as much revenue in the network full stop? How do I make the argument with government, to the minister, to the premier, to the yeah. treasurer, especially to other politicians, to say we need consistency... Of, of funding and resource allocation. What's your total annual operating budget? Uh, so we have about a $4 billion uh, Aussie dollar operating budget okay. uh, every year. And capital? Uh, capital's really high at the moment. So as I say, we're spending about 10 to $12 billion at the moment average okay. per annum on, on our infrastructure program. We know that's a we know that's a bulge. So we know we're going through, and it's the yeah. same in Sydney. Kind of bubble, you, yeah. you know, so Howard will tell you, it's the same kind of bubble that we're all going through, and it's a great, it's a great wave to surf. Hey, it's you know, a great really time to be here, man. You've got a little money, right? Um, but we know, we're now starting to think, okay, well, in 10 years' time, when all that infrastructure has landed and it needs to be maintained, and we're running another 20% more services to, to utilize the infrastructure, to provide more services, that all costs money. Right. So what does the long-term funding model look like that's going to sustain that so we don't end up in another you know, nuclear nuclear winter where right. the whole, all the money get, disappears and you can't run services? Do you have, like in Maryland, we had a six-year consolidated transportation plan. So yep. we would plan out our capital budget six years in advance. Do you have something like that? Yeah, here? broadly. So we, we have a four-year funding commitment from government. So, oh, so actually, that's think, nice. So we have a four-year funding from government. Yeah. We, have, we also have... And this is the, one of the benefits of the outsourcing model for us is that essentially we're signing seven to ten year contracts. Right. So right? you know so, what your expenses are going to so be. So we're locking there. it yeah. in. So we're, so we're locking in yes. a financial commitment. We're locking in our operating costs. Right. Uh, we're actually risk transferring quite a lot. So yes. the, uh, we're transferring the risk to, to Raymond and to Nicola right. saying, well, you guys can now manage your cost base because we've given you your price. We've put away the money. We're all good to go. So. My seven-year, seven to ten-year projection is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what I can afford to run. My challenge is that in seven to ten years' time, all the infrastructure comes back to me. I have to go back out to the market. I'm going to reprice it. Yes. Everything's going to go up by X percent. Oh, I'm yeah. negotiate it down by Y percent. Yes. <laughs> do I have the Do I have the difference yeah. to fund? That's the challenge. So tell us about the exciting things you're doing now. That that's kind of a look at what's happening from today backwards. Now tell me what's happening from today going forward. You've got so many cool things you're working on. As I said, it's a really, it's a really, it's a really fun place. There's a lot we can do. Probably the, the, the uh, immediate thing we'll be, uh, we'll be doing very shortly is looking to expand our, our mobile Mikey platform. What is that? Uh, our mobile, so we have our mobile payment platform. So oh, yes. we have a, we have a currently- I downloaded a, your app, your PTP. Right, exactly. Yes. We, have a, we have a smart card, which is super. We're now loading it onto phones, onto Android phones. And so we'll be doing that pretty soon. And that will, Finally, for us, remove physical the need to carry a physical ticket on our network. So, are you, you going to try to shift program. people yeah. that way? That's right. So, we're, we're we're actively yeah. yeah we're keen to shift people into technology. It then allows you to integrate it into the app. It starts to bring all these strands back together. Again. Yeah, and it's a really it's a really fun thing to be doing. London Wind had a really good route for them, which yes. enabled them to move easily to tap and go. The configuration of our of our back office doesn't allow us to do that. But what we are able to do is to essentially use an app software to mimic the card. So okay. we're using an NFC chip to mimic what a what a smart card does. Will you tap it or you don't need to tap it? You will you... need to tap it, but you'll be tapping with your phone. With your phone, you're, right, you're, yeah. you're, right. Right now, we've got, we've got Android over the line. 
we're working with the other big guys. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> you're we'll, right. We'll get them squared away. Good. Um, but that's that's an exciting, fun thing. Yeah, to do, that is. And the feedback from our passengers, you know, we've done out, we've got four thousand people out there now okay. playing with it and trying it, beta trying testers. to break it. Yeah, and they love it. So they're, ah. they're saying, you know, ninety-two percent. This is fantastic. You know, when can we have some more? So, exciting. Uh, by the time this comes out, hopefully we'll be uh, able to announce something. So excited okay. about that. That's good. And it's a good example of. Technology is, this is why public transport is the most exciting it's ever been in, in our, yes, our work lifetimes because it's technology is allowing us to do so much more. So yep. for, the, for the very first time, what handheld technology allows us to do is to say to people, your value of time has suddenly shifted. So when we were, when you and I were, were first starting on working careers, the preference would always have been for people to sit in their cars because they could listen to the radio and have their private space and... 15 years ago, they could maybe even make their own private phone calls where they're driving along, and you couldn't do that on a train, and it was right. awful. Whereas now, I can't reach Facebook on, when I'm driving. You know, it's a really dangerous thing to do, yes. right? So, so suddenly, people can work, they can do social media, they can stay connected, they can read the paper, they can do everything yes. when they're in public transport, all the things they can no longer do when they're driving in cars. And it's a game changer. That's it's a, a really good changer. analogy. I haven't everybody say that before. And That's and good. And it's a game changer for millennials, for, for people like Jake sitting here in the room, you know, who, who, who value time very differently who value technology very differently yes. than, than old people like you and I um, <laughs> so so that's a, that's a big shift right. and I think that's a that always exciting. And then you start to apply technology to, to the transit environment. Uh, you know, obviously, with you know, you, you're, you're well aware of, of, of how we use real-time information on yes. our networks. You know, every single one of our services has now got real-time information in the hands of the user. That's you wonderful. know where your services are going to be. So we haven't quite thrown away the timetable yet. I'm, I'm desperate to do yeah. it. We will do it at some point. <laughs> do headway management instead of time Exactly. Management. Get to headway yes. management. Get to turn up and go. Get to people saying it doesn't matter what, what the... What, you, know, you, don't need a, you don't need a bit of paper to tell you where when the train's going to turn up it's just right. going to you're going to rock up to a location we'll give you a prompt two minutes out and it'll be there that's uh, awesome and that's that, yeah. that, all of that's within within touch you see it in other parts of the yep. world it's nothing novel but it's but it's an amazing thing from, from our passage completely yeah. changer what else um, is next the other pieces for us then is around saying well how do you we're now doing an awful lot of work here to say well how do we we fire up all this new infrastructure, we get new tunnels, we get new trains, we get to a turn-up-and-go service. We make these interchanges work properly. And, it, and interchanging is, it's a, it's a transport planner's dream and it's a passenger's nightmare, right? So, so we know particularly in, here in, in Victoria and, and, and in Australia generally, there is still a, an expectation and a very strong customer preference that says, I want to have a one-seat journey. So, you know, I'm prepared to drive to a station. That's a cute idea. Uh, let's get rid of that for a yeah. start. But anyway, I'll drive to a station, and then I want a one-seat journey to my final destination. And we're, we're just about to really tackle that and say, no, we want you to interchange. We want you to walk and cycle to the station. We want you to take a bus to the station. But we'll make that interchange and that transition really smooth. You're then going to go close to the CBD, and you may have to change again to get to your final destination. And that's okay. That's mm-hmm. part of the journey. If we can make those transition points much more frictionless and much make those environments more enjoyable that starts to become yeah that opens up huge opportunities for getting more capacity out of your network because right now our network is hobbled with some really unproductive inefficient uses of of our of our train paths of our tram routes because they're all winding through to do these one-seat journeys, which is just not viable anymore. So that's, then that's part of the growth pangs. That's, that's mm-hmm. when you're a city of three to four million people, you can do stuff like that. When you're a city of five to eight million people, you can't, and, and, and the whole game starts to change. I think the other piece then is around, we're doing a lot of work with local communities around, around places, because, so this is not a public transport story, you know, public transport is boring, and this, this is about how cities develop and how communities develop yes. and how societies work. So 
I talked about the tram and trying to make the trams accessible to people. Well, to do that, you have to get into local communities. So I'm talking to local governments and local communities around high streets and saying, how do I build my accessible platform stops in your street without ruining your retail strip? How do I use it to improve the urban environment? How do I use it to improve those local communities? How can you work with me to do that? And that means I have to be more flexible, which Mm -hmm. is hard because I'm a state transit authority that likes to get stuff done. You have to be more in tune with what the different local needs are and you have to be more flexible. So there's a whole different set of skills that come to play. But, But we're building a future city here. And the way we connect these communities will determine how they operate and how they and how they go in the future. So that that's a really, yeah, for a city that's growing as quickly, that's a really exciting space to be. That's exciting. Yeah, you've got quite a good vision for what's happening. And I think that uh, the last part is very realistic and to make sure that you can make changes and improvements that are accepted by the community and make the community better. That's right, that's right. Because look, ultimately we need... If the public aren't using our services, if they don't love public transport, if they don't love their trains and their trams and their buses, they won't vote for them. Right. And then we will just see these systems continue to wither on the vine. And and the the result of that is ghastly cities that just don't function properly, that are not fit for the future. Right. So so we haven't even talked about ride share, we haven't even talked about automation. All those technologies that are coming up on, on the rails that give us so many more opportunities to to build an integrated network that is intuitive that allows people to flow. Yes. That's all out there. But if we don't get the basics right, that's not possible. Then these modes all become competitive and we see Hollowdale, low-density, disoriented places that are just not competitive for the future. Well, let's close with that then. Why don't you give us your vision of where where you think all that plays in? The automation, you know, everybody's talking about it now. Automated vehicles, are they the best first and last mile solution so you don't have to drive? Where do you see transport in general, not Mm -hmm. just here, but as a leader in the industry? Where do you see it going the next five to ten years? I think ten years is easier than five. So I think if you talk ten years out, I think what you'll see is you will see you'll see far more connected transit systems. You'll see people making far smoother, you know, we're using multiple different what we call modes today to make a particular journey. And those contact points will be far more intuitive. It'll be a single pricing structure, a single information field. There'll be much less competition between people saying, I'm making a choice between a car and public transport and walking and cycling. They'll come together much more. We will see, I think, finally, the uh, the grip of the privately owned vehicle will be eroding, particularly in urban societies. I think in, 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 in outer suburban, rural areas, different game. But I think right. in urban societies, the availability of, of on-demand private transport, of, of short-term car hire, car share, will really continue to erode the privately owned market. That opens up huge opportunities for mass transit systems. So, so mass transit systems integrating and connecting with, with the last mile home providers and, and finding far more flexible ways to do that. It's enabled, it's held together by technology. I think there will be a competition in that market between who owns the customer. So who does the customer play with? So does the customer play with Uber? Right. Does the customer play with, with, with Public Transport Victoria? Does the customer play with Google? Yeah, who are the players in this market and who are the people who fulfill the service behind the scenes? And, and that hasn't settled yet. That's a really interesting yes. commercial versus public policy kind of space. Mm-hmm. It's terribly exciting. And look, at the end of the day, the customer will win in all this. They yes. will make their own choices around, these are the people I, want, I trust my data with, my information with, I trust my finances with, and who I rely upon to get me to move around these yeah. places. Graham Curry and I had coffee this morning talking about exactly that. What's the role with the public agency? I believe it's the aggregator of all of it. We need to be the the centerpiece. And 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 that's where the public policy agenda becomes so important. So how you run your, your mobility services, how you provide the infrastructure, where you guide the investment, 
it drives how societies work. It drives where people live, where they work, where they go to school. So if the public policy space isn't positively held and then it's eroded away, you lose controls to how your society develops. And we do know that there's, there's a fantastic set of disruptors bringing real innovation, real creativity, really good ideas into the table. The risk is they don't own the long-term future. So they'll come in and they'll take a bit of the market and they'll evolve into the next That's thing. Right. We should work with them, we should learn from them, we should adapt to them, but we can't relinquish. Yes, see, control. Right. Great way to close it. Right. You've got a great system here. Uh, Melbourne, not only I think is the most livable city in the world, but it's got probably, like you said, the most advanced, connected, and awesome transit system I've seen. Good. Thank you, yeah, Paul. Great to see you here. Enjoy it. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.